Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. From the High Center Studios of Messiah College, among the 3D-rendered polygons of Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Wave Improvement Leads Home Podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, as always, and welcome to episode 44 of the Wave Improvement Leads Home Podcast. We are recording this during the December holiday season. It's gift-giving season. And if you have kids, I'm guessing that they may have video games on their holiday wish list. Is that a fair assumption, Drew? Understatement of the year. Yeah, I mean, of course. And, and, and I think it's important to add, too, it's not just kids. Uh, video gaming has increasingly become a market geared towards adults as well as kids. That's right. That's right. Drew, are you a gamer, as they say? Uh, in short, yes, I think I would qualify. But um, I do have to... You know, I, I have had to cut down significantly on my gaming, what with having a three-year-old and whatnot. It would not be well-received if I were okay. to, to, to put in the hours it takes to play a lot of video games, uh, if, I, if I were to do that and shirk my fatherly duties. I am not a gamer. I think the last video game I played was back in the late 70s or maybe early 80s. I got, some of you might remember, Mattel's In Television. Uh, I got that for Christmas, and I vaguely remember playing it. I remember being there some kind of a hockey game and something else. Um, but yeah, uh, this is all new. This subject, brand new for me. I don't, I don't remember in television specifically. Uh, you know, I was waiting for that reference to Atari or the the famous first game, Pong. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know. I was also kind of hoping maybe to get a vision of you as a as a bratty young kid going to the arcade with a pocket full of quarters. You know, there, there, yeah. there, there was that whole scene. I think it was was within your time. But well, that um, you know, you're getting me nostalgic here. I mean, that is that considered video gaming? Because if that's the case, I played a lot of like asteroids, yeah, and space yeah, invaders, pinball yeah. machine, Dig Dug. I, I used to love Dig Dug. Remember that? Yeah. But I also want to add, when you say you haven't played a video game since the 1990s, you're telling a bit of a fib. Uh, do you want to explain or should I? Well, that's right, Drew. A couple days ago, I was introduced to Assassin's Creed 3. That's the one devoted to the revolutionary America, colonial America. We got a few folks, including our producer, Abigail LaBianca, to uh, we twisted their arms to sit around in a classroom on campus and give me moral support as I tried to learn this game. Uh, and of course, I had a great teacher, Drew. You were my teacher. So let me ask you, how do you think I did? 
Well, once you got over the fact that the game does not have 1980s style joystick, you started <laughs> yeah. you started to get the hang of it. But but hey, don't take my word for it. Let's go to the tape. Am I like getting into 18th century America now? I think so. How do I get over that? Please jump or uh, press one of these buttons. Yeah, so I saw that. On so what is part. this I'm in? I don't think there's a building this majestic in colonial America. This is fancy. Is he just trying to scale this whole thing to get over to that guy? Yeah. To kill him? Oh, yeah. Oh. This is the life of an assassin, my friend. How did he kill him? He has a little blade he keeps in his cuff. What's going on? It's all the commotion. They figured out the, mo- the murder. You gotta sneak out of here. I know, but why aren't they catching him? Like, why aren't they going after him right now? He must be in somewhere. No, it's you. I gotta get out of here. No! <laughs> it's pretty obvious I'm the guy at this point. <laughs> You're supposed to go down that hallway over there. I'm trying to get through, but that woman's there. Well, you gotta hold me and push her out of the way. Peace, friends, there is no danger. Oh, do I have my fight? Yeah, you have to fight this guy. How do I fight? The instructions are on there. Harry. Harry. Alright, I get it. You got out! <laughs> Now, for the listener, you should know I edit out the many, many instances when I had to explain to you, John, that you were, in fact, pressing the wrong button. That's right. <laughs> there were a couple times, too, where you just handed me the controller out of frustration right. uh, so I could get through a section. But you did manage to win a digital fist fight on the deck of a transatlantic sailing venture, even even finding time to make a historiographical reference in the process. So you think I did okay? I think you did okay. Now, that's high praise, Drew. I'll take it. And if you're the listener out there and you haven't figured it out yet, today we are going to be talking about history and video games. Drew, tell us a little more about what we can expect in this episode. Yeah, well, you know, about once a season, you know, you let me pitch the episode. So this is the this is the episode <laughs> that I pitched. You make me sound like a tyrant <laughs> over here. Yeah. Well, no, you know, I, I do like to have content control, though. That's <laughs> no, right. That's fine. Yeah. This is this is your podcast. I'm the co-host. But um, our our guest today is Bob Whitaker. Uh, he was actually a co-panelist with me um, on a panel on history podcasting at a conference that I recently went to in New Orleans. And as uh, someone with passing interest in this subject, you know, I have, for instance, played many of the aforementioned Assassin's Creed games. I've always been interested in getting him on the podcast. Yeah, I think this is going to be an interesting and really fun kind of episode. Um, I'm looking forward to interviewing Bob here in a few minutes. But first, Drew, tell us how our listeners can continue to connect with the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a proud member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Head to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. Our podcast is brought to you through the generous donations of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, Margaret Graves, and Gretchen Adams. And as always, many thanks to Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. We are also sponsored by the Lindhurst Group. History is a critical but often overlooked part of nurturing and developing vital communities. Are you trying to build stronger communities through your history organization or museum? Do you wonder if your organization is working as efficiently as possible? Bob Beattie and the Lindhurst Group can help with organizational assessments and in-depth strategic planning. Over his 20-year career in nonprofits in the public sector, Bob Beattie has honed proven strategies to engage communities deeply in the work of history organizations and museums. Contact Bob at lindhurstgroup.org that's l-y-n-d-h-u-r-s-t to learn how the lindhurst group can help you make your institution the asset your community wants and needs 
If you want to become a sponsor of the show, please head over to thewaveimprovement.com and click support. The best way to spread the word about the podcast is on social media. So again, follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast, and that's on Twitter or Facebook. Consider giving us a positive review, iTunes or Stitcher, and you can also catch us on Spotify. So make sure to share your favorite episode with a friend or family member, uh, especially in this holiday season of giving. That's right. I'm actually, I'm actually need to ask Bob Beatty, our sponsor from the Lindhurst Group, what he thinks about video games. Like, does he incorporate them into his exhibits or his public history? Uh, this way, I bet you he'd be open to the idea. Yeah, be a good, at least a good um, conversation. Yeah, I mean, if you are interested in using history, as Drew mentioned, to uh, enhance your communities, enhance your local historical society, and so forth, give Bob Beatty a call. If you need some advice, some very good advice about college, give Jennings College Consulting a call. The right fit for you. Right? <laughs> the the right college fit. The for right your college fit for your future. Also, thank you so much, everybody who gives to the podcast, our patrons. We have a growing number of patrons. We hope you'll head over to the Patreon site uh, and support us as you think about your end of the year giving. Um, thank you as well for those maybe who are not in a position to support us right now or pledge. You know, we often are interested in one-time gifts. We'll be happy to accept those too. But also thank you just for sharing on social media telling your friends about our podcast. You know, we try to deliver some really good history-related content here that's also uh, sort of useful to the way we think about our lives together in the United States and beyond. So a big hearty thank you as we uh, move into the new year. Not a new season, right? We'll continue the season through May, but 2019. Bob Whitaker will be with us in a few minutes, but first, John, you have some thoughts. While you're talking, I'm just going to boot up my copy of Sid Meier's Civilization, so don't mind me. As mentioned in our opening banter, I don't play video games. For whatever reason, I've never been interested in them. But as someone who is always looking for creative ways of bringing history to the public, and who has tried to convince my students that their history degrees can lead them into a variety of jobs and vocations including the video game and tech world. I was intrigued to learn in 2012 that the popular Assassin's Creed action-adventure video game series released an installment set in the context of the American Revolution. I played Assassin's Creed for the first time two days ago, so I'm really in no position to evaluate its historical accuracy or usefulness as an educational tool. But I have managed to read some commentary on the game from historians I respect. For example, J.L. Bell, the author of the popular Boston 1775 blog, and frankly, a guy who probably knows more about revolutionary era Boston than anyone on the face of the earth, thinks that the game's reconstruction of pre-revolutionary Boston is very accurate. He's actually very impressed by it. It seems that this alone would make the game of interest to historians and history students. By the way, in an interview with a Boston public radio station, Bell described Connor Kenway, the half-Mohawk, half-English star of the game who runs rampant through colonial Boston, killing dozens of people, as distracting. The producers of Assassin's Creed used 18th century maps to reconstruct the colonial city. Frankly, I would love to see similar reconstructions of other sites, including 18th century Philadelphia, 
the city that I know best. But Bell also points out historical problems with the game. For example, Connor Kenway moves throughout the city killing British redcoats, even though there were no redcoats in Boston in 1773. They did not arrive until after the Boston Tea Party in December. Bell also notes that the facial hair on the characters is not characteristic of 18th century Bostonians. And in the Lexington and Concord scene, the Boston militia are defending the North Bridge at Concord from advancing British soldiers when actually the opposite was true. But while historical accuracy is important, it is probably not a good idea to get too caught up in it when playing Assassin's Creed 3. Let's remember, this is a video game. As historian Michael Hatem wrote in response to Bell's review, quote, a video game is no different than a movie nowadays. Of course, the creators took liberty in order to improve gameplay, like screenwriters do to heighten the drama of the story they are telling. It is a fictional game that is only set in the colonies during the revolution. I found myself more pleased with the things they did get right rather than displeased with the things they got wrong. Expecting this video game to actually teach kids about the revolution is too much to ask of any video game or movie. But if it can spark an interest in the subject, then it has done its job from a historical perspective, unquote. So what can we learn about history of video games? I think it's now time to turn things over to today's guest. Robert Whitaker is a Wagner Center Research Fellow and teaches history at Louisiana Tech University. His project, Policing Globalization, the Imperial Origins of International Police Cooperation, 1918-1960, to studies the relationship between the British Empire and international police organizations such as Interpol. Robert is also the creator and host of History Respond, a YouTube and podcast series that considers historical content in video games. Our guest today is Bob Whitaker. He teaches history at Louisiana Tech University, and he's also a research fellow at the Wagner Center, also at Louisiana Tech. He is also the creator and host of History Respond, a YouTube and podcast series that considers historical content in video games. Bob, welcome to the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Thanks for having me on. Now, a lot of our listeners, like me, may not necessarily be uh, video game people. So tell us, History Respawned, what is, what is that Respawned all about? Is that a, is that a techie uh, uh, word? You know, explain the title of your podcast. All right, so history, I hope, is self-evident. But uh, right, Respawned, right. Uh, Respawn is a term from video games, and it typically refers to when a video game character or thing reappears after dying. Uh, so this is usually a reference to multiplayer shooters okay. in which you uh, play and you're killed and you play and you die over and over again. And each time you die and reappear, that's called respawning. So I uh, use that term in order to attract a video game audience to make it clear that this is a show about history and video games. And the quickest way I could do that uh, was using that term. But, you know, occasionally I'll get academics who come up to me and say, so this is a show about fish spawning. <laughs> uh, I don't get it. What, yeah. What's the deal? 
Drew, Drew's over here nodding his head like he's like this expert on video games. So you're, I'm assuming, Drew, you're familiar with the term respawn. Yeah, I went to school here at Maasai during the video game era. So uh, okay. I, I spent many times when I should have been writing papers for you. I was playing the first edition of Halo on, on the Xbox and respawning quite a lot as I there played against my uh, dorm mates. There you go. Rob, give us an overview just for our listeners about you are a historian, you are a trained historian, and you are, you know, for lack of a better phrase, you are a video game commentator. How do you bring those two worlds together and, and maybe a little bit of your history, how you came to bring those two worlds together? Well, it's a topic that I was always interested in the ways in which video games often portrayed history. Um, you know, one of the earliest video games is actually a history video game. Uh, we can talk about Oregon Trail, yeah. uh, which was created by high school teachers uh, in Minnesota back in the early 1970s. Um, so there's been a long running relationship between history and video games. And from my early ages, I played games like uh, the Civilization series, games that uh, you know really took a lot of history uh, and attempted to make interesting game content out of it. And uh, back in the mid-90s, when I was a teenager, I would often create modifications uh, for games like Civilization, in which I would attempt to take some part of the historical record and turn it into a mod that other players uh, could play. And in many ways, that was kind of my entry point to writing history, right? Mm -hmm. creating those modifications for a video game. So I had always had this interest, and I didn't really explore it as a commentator uh, until I was a graduate student at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, and around uh, 2012, uh, I wrote a series of essays and articles uh, for Joan Newberger uh, in her website at UT Austin, Not Even Past. Uh, and in those articles and essays, I explored this concept, you know, kind of in a general sense about how video games are using history, how they are misusing history, yeah. and how that tends to attract uh, a large video game audience of players. Yeah, I think we're going to pick up on some of these themes you just mentioned in that answer as we move through here the interview. That's that's. So it was the video games that got you into history, right? It wasn't you were a historian who wanted to bring historical content to video games. That's right. That's interesting. Yeah. Now, a lot of our listeners, Bob, are teachers, a lot of secondary teachers, even K through 12 teachers. We even, have, you know, a lot of college professors listen to us. Tell us a little bit about how you've brought video games into your history classroom. You know, what are some tips or how might teachers follow uh, your lead in using video games as kind of pedagogical tools? Well, I think, you know, there's some pretty big barriers to using video games in the classroom. And I'm sure you can probably imagine them right off the bat. Yeah. You know, first and foremost, uh, you know, quite a few people don't play games. Right. And so there's a big barrier with learning what I call the language of play, right? Learning how to use the controller, uh, learning kind of the concepts and ideas behind video games, such as respawning. Uh, and then also there's a significant barrier with the price of playing games, yeah. right? It's not just a matter of buying the game itself. It's also buying the equipment that goes along with it. Uh, and particularly these consoles are sometimes several hundred dollars. Uh, yeah. And so you know, with those barriers in mind, uh, you know, what I tell other teachers, particularly at the secondary level, uh, is sometimes it's better to use uh, the resources that are being put out on YouTube uh, mm -hmm. or on streaming services like Twitch. So instead of having your students and yourself 
buy the games, learning how to play them, you know, there are ready resources on YouTube where people have gone through the entirety of these historical games and uploaded the footage that they've captured uh, for anybody to watch. And what's amazing about video games, and I, I don't know how long this is going to last, but there is no copyright restrictions uh, with uploading that content online. So, you know, if you were to talk about uploading an entire book or uploading an entire movie uh, to show other people, there would be strict copyright restrictions. You might even get sued. Yeah. Uh, but video game developers, video game publishers, they see these YouTube videos, they see these Twitch streams as free advertising. So I think teachers can take advantage of that by, you know, pointing their students, pointing their classes to these ready-made playthroughs of a game rather than having their students, you know, put down the money to buy them. Right. And, you know, the other thing is I created History Respawn in many ways to do this work, right, to give uh, secondary instructors, collegiate instructors, the ability to have knowledgeable critiques, historical critiques of these games, uh, but available for free on YouTube. And that saves them the time of having to buy the games or learn how to play them. Um, if there's, you know, interest, you know, really kind of fervent interest amongst secondary teachers, college teachers to actually play the games in the classroom, I would say that, you know, playing older games, maybe playing games that are on older consoles that are mm -hmm. cheaper. Uh, there are several historical games that are on phones, uh, for instance. Um, and I've taken up this strategy before. Uh, for instance, I used a, a phone version of the old Oregon Trail game uh, for a U.S. history course uh, a few years ago. And what I had the students do was uh, play through the game as a class and try to get as far as they could working as a cooperative, right? Rather mm -hmm. than individual players, having them kind of replicate the experience of being on the trail, working in teams of 20 to 30 people and making these decisions about, you know, fording the river or buying supplies. And after that process, I have the students kind of write down their experiences and tell me, you know, what was realistic about this experience and then also what was missing uh, from the game. And usually this comes in the context of, a, you know, a week-long discussion of right. westward expansion. So they're primed to talk about, well, the Oregon Trail doesn't mention slavery, right? It doesn't yeah, mention yeah. Uh, the role of slavery in western expansion. And also there's not much of a role uh, for Native Americans. Uh, so those are some tips that I have for yeah. for people interested in incorporating games into the classroom. Now, it's interesting you're talking about Oregon Trail, right, which has been around for a long time. You know, I remember friends playing this in like the 80s in college mm -hmm. um, on like little, these little, whatever those little Macs, those, <laughs> uh, those, um, the 2E, the little Macintosh. Or, uh, the, uh, the, yeah, the Macintosh Classic. Yeah, the Classic. Now, how has, I mean, you don't have to talk specifically here about Oregon Trail, but but how have history-related video games sort of changed over time? It's almost like a historiography question, right? You know, does the modern Oregon Trail versions, are they more sensitive to, like, slavery and Native Americans? Do you see kind of in the history of uh, history-related video games kind of a, you know, any changes over time in the way sort of social history and the field of history might have influenced these games to bring in more diverse voices or to think differently about the subjects in a way that perhaps they didn't think about them maybe 20 years ago. Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that's happened recently, uh, yeah. say in the past 10 years or so. I'd say over the long term, 
you know, going back to the early 1970s until maybe the mid 2000s, games were heavily influenced by motion pictures and yeah. by documentary series, right? So really what games were doing in terms of narrative, particularly with historical narrative, was that they were optioning off what they saw in films or in documentaries and then putting that into right. their games. And so you know, kind of the famous example that I always point to uh, is the release of Saving Private Ryan in 1998, which led to a huge yeah. slew of uh, World War II video games from 98 until maybe 2007 or so. Mm -hmm. And in that context, you basically have video game developers recreating what they've seen yeah. in World War II movies. So the extent to which narratives from social scientists, from historians are influencing films, that's the extent to which you get kind of changes within game narratives. Right. Now, what's interesting in the past 10 years or so is that we've gotten kind of a move away from simply replicating films in games. And you now have game writers who are writing original stories. And as a result, you get narratives that are reflection of larger trends within uh, historiography. Uh, so for instance, yeah. going back to World War II games, just to give an example, uh, the latest version of the Battlefield series, which is kind of historically a, a World War II sim, uh, Battlefield Five, which was just released a few weeks ago. Uh, this is one of the first World War II games that kind of breaks away from kind of the greatest generation, Stephen yeah. Ambrose view of the Second World War. And the game narrative actually includes a space for female soldiers. Mm -hmm. It includes a space for resistance fighters. Uh, there's quite a bit in the game on the Eastern Front during the war. Uh, and then also there's a section for uh, Senegalese soldiers uh, fighting for the French uh, during the Second World War. So in that sense, you know, because game writers are, I think, getting away from just copying film narratives, they're opening up for more stories that reflect the ways in which, you know, historians, the ways in which scholars talk about these things in books or in the classroom. To your knowledge, just a follow up question is to your knowledge. Is there any direct role that professional historians play in some of these video games is like, I don't know, like Gordon Wood consulted on the Assassin's Creed three, uh, you know, American Revolution, you know, or is it just more indirect? Right. Do historians, actual professional historians play any role in as consultants or so forth? There are some instances, uh, particularly with the Assassin's Creed series. Yeah. They actually have a, an in-house historian by the name of Maxime Durand. He has been working on the Assassin's Creed series since Assassin's Creed 3, which was focused on uh, kind of colonial America, yeah. American independence uh, in the 18th century. Uh, he's worked on the game through uh, their French Revolution uh, version of French Revolution game, I should say. Uh, through their game on ancient Egypt and now uh, in their game on uh, ancient Greece. And, yeah. you know, for him, you know, he gets paid basically to do the research, to contact other scholars, right. uh, to get their opinions on the narrative for the game. And then he hands that over to uh, the game makers right. and they kind of pick and choose what they want. Sure. Um, sure. But what's interesting is more recently with the Assassin's Creed series is they've developed a separate mode to the game called Discovery Tour. And in Discovery Tour mode, you are presented a kind of a non-combat, uh, non-story version of the game in which right. you can explore 
uh, and experience a lot of the research that went behind yeah. the creation of the game and the game characters and the narrative. So, um, in to that extent, there is there there are historians who are working on these games, but it's kind of something that is only available to what we call AAA games. These kind of huge, big budget okay. uh, games like the Assassin's Creed series. Yeah. Just before I came over here, I was talking to I was talking to Drew about this earlier in the day, but I was also talking to our ancient historian in our department, and he uses what it had been the Egypt one um the 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 what, what, what did you just mention the, the assassin's creed origins yeah yes. origins he uses that um that in his classes to show what the ancient world would have looked like so i mean that there seems to be endless possibilities there for forget about the video game part that technology just seems to be you know have endless possibilities for bringing people you know i'd love to just do a walking tour as a colonial american historian i'd love to just be able to have a walking tour of colonial Boston without Connor, you know, running around, <laughs> running around, killing people. Right. Um, yeah. you know, it gets kind of distracting, but. You know. And I think a number of gamers would agree with you. Um, yeah. you know, there's lots of instances and I think, you know, the publication of discovery tour by Ubisoft, the creator of, yeah. uh, Assassin's Creed, you know, speaks to this is that there are players out there, uh, who want this mode, who want to just be able to walk through without right. having to worry about uh, learning the language of the game. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, you know, it, this is a, a, a publicly traded company, so they don't yeah. do anything without having a financial reason behind sure, it. So sure. I think to that end, it, it works in the favor of, uh, of historians. Yeah, I was just, you know, sort of put a bow on this conversation here. I, uh, I just took my students on Saturday on a tour of colonial Philadelphia. And, you know, there's so much that's kind of left to the imagination when you're out there, you know, like here, this diner here used to be City Hall kind of thing. And and that would just be such a wonderful tool for. for yes. I don't think it would it would ever replace the kind of walking tour. Right. But it would certainly enhance it. Mm -hmm. um, let me ask you a question about many of these video games are so driven by violence. Right. And. Mm -hmm. There are so many, especially historians, uh, who tend to uh, feel very uncomfortable with violence. They're critics of the use of violence and power in the past. How do you think about violence? How do you square the critique that academics have of video games? And I'm thinking here in terms of their openness to use them in the classroom or something with the prevalence of violence in, in those games. Oh, of course, it's a massive issue. I mean, yeah. I'm sure listeners can remember the controversies around games such as Grand Theft Auto yeah. or going back to the 1990s, talking about Mortal Kombat uh, or even Doom. Um, you know, there's even a little bit of controversy with uh, games like The Oregon Trail, which yeah. include shooting sequences right. as well. And, you know, I think that the you know games are awash in violence and it's because games are typically portrayed as power fantasies right. for the players, right? Allowing them to act out or to perpetrate deeds that they wouldn't normally be able to uh, in the real world. And, you know, despite the fact that there's been so much research now on the lack of a, a strong correlation between real world violence and video game violence, it's still one of these things that all game critics, all game scholars have to have to deal with. But I think what I've seen in the past decade or so is that there has been a move on the part of game developers to 
kind of not so much get rid of violence in games, but to find other options to interest the player, to uh, develop game mechanics that don't always necessarily involve shooting or murdering other people. I can think of instances uh, like Assassin's Creed with Discovery Tour mode where there is no combat. Um, I can think of other games such as uh, the Dishonored series, which is a, a first-person action game kind of set in a, a fictionalized version of uh, Victorian England. And in that game, you're actually uh, given uh, bonus skills, bonus abilities if you don't murder anybody. Yeah. Um, so it's one of these things. It's difficult to it's difficult to square because so many games are still focused on violence, even if it is uh, cartoon violence, like something you see in a game like yeah. Fortnite. Um, so I would say that things have begun to change, but it, it might be a long time before we kind of divorce ourselves from this controversy between violence and games in yeah. general. Yeah. And as you were talking, you know, I was thinking about something like Oregon Trail where, you know, there would have been a lot of violence, right? There, mm -hmm. I mean, if you're going to yeah. give an accurate portrayal of the past, you know, maybe the video mm -hmm. game producers are sort of good historians on this front. Of course, this yeah. differs from someone like, you know, I played with I played with this Assassin's 3 the other day. And, you know, this is completely different than that. You know, Connor is this guy who's killing people left and right, you know, a little bit different <laughs> than, than, say, Oregon Trail. Drew, you mm -hmm. had a question. Well, I mean, selfishly, as someone finishing his dissertation as we speak, just as a quick aside, uh, you know, I, re I rewarded myself after passing my comprehensive exams to spend a, a couple months not worried so much about school and instead got pretty deep into uh, Breath of the Wild, the, the, the most <laughs> recent uh, Zelda game. But now that I've restarted my dissertation, I just kind of want to ask you, like, how you balance the dueling time commitments of finishing a PhD and staying up to date on recent video games. I mean, these things aren't designed to be played quickly. They're not designed to take just a couple minutes of your time. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that's another big barrier when you're considering using these things in the classroom. Right. Um, you know, for instance, I just got done playing both Assassin's Creed Odyssey and Red Dead Redemption 2. So these two major uh, historical games that came out in the past couple of months and each of those games in order to complete the main storyline takes 50 hours. Wow. 50 hours for each game. And so you look back at that. And of course, these games, they track your progress. They'll uh, you know, many uh, game platforms will tell you how long you've spent with a game. And you look at that number afterwards and you say, man, how many book reviews is that? <laughs> how 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 many how much time on, you know, my book project is that how many chapters is that? And it's a little bit distressing. But, you know, the way I've always looked at it, the way I've tried to balance it is it, you know, this is kind of my hobby. Yeah. Right. It's kind of my uh, passion outside of my work. Uh, but it also is part of my research interest, yeah. right? You know, I'm interested in promoting the use of games and gaming for scholars and also for students to kind of appreciate and understand the past. And so in a way, I see, you know, the work that I do for History Respawn as a way to not only pursue that research interest, to pursue that public history goal, uh, but then also to uh, play the games that I love. You know, if I didn't have History Respawn, I would still be playing these games regardless. I might not finish them uh, in a reasonable time, but I would definitely be playing them. And so in a way, I think that I've managed to turn my hobby into work, but it's yeah. work that I enjoy. You know, it's never a moment where I'm saying, oh, gosh, you know, I've got to get through this this video game, you know, in order to produce this episode. It's always like, oh, I can't wait to show other scholars, to talk to players about the history behind this. It, it never feels like work. Yeah. 
Yeah. As someone who's a, who's a blogger and kind of a news junkie who, you know, sometimes feels guilty about wasting so much time watching cable news or, you know, I mean, you know, and, and as a blogger, I'm saying, well, this blog is sort of part of my professional profile, right? I'm trying to bring mm-hmm. historical perspectives to the news or, you know, sports historians tell me this, right? I love watching sports and now I can bring some, you know, sounds very similar, Drew. Yeah, I'm just actually just looking for good excuses to, yeah. to, to say, oh, sorry, I, I got to go play this game for a minute. You need to see Bob's, Bob's <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Exactly. He's figured out how to do it, right? If just, you're just scholarly, follow my model. you know, yeah. Yeah. follow my model, start a YouTube channel, uh, create your own separate podcast if you're allowed to, uh, and just start playing games and talking about them. I mean, I, I keep telling other scholars to as much as possible to, to publish what they think about these games that yeah. they're playing because people are interested, right? I mean, you know, History Respawn is something that I've been doing on and off for five years. But each time I publish a video, there are people out there eager for more, right? Um, when I did my first video, I, I published something that was 45 minutes long. And I published it on YouTube, right? And you think of most videos being about eight minutes. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, gosh, this is going to be yeah. awful. And it is still our most watched episode. And wow. there are people in there, the comment section, who are saying, boy, I really wish you'd spend another hour or two. talking about this game. And so I would say, you know, try to turn your hobby into uh, part of your work. Uh, It's worked pretty well for me. Yeah, that's great. Let me ask you a question about kind of specific video games, right? Maybe in the process, maybe our listeners might get some tips as to, you know, Christmas presents or holiday presents. (laughs) Um, Are there particular video games that you think that take history, you know, maybe more seriously than others or a sort of series of video games that take history more serious than others? You know, what sets a good history themed video apart from the weaker ones? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... As a general rule, any any game that goes beyond treating the history as something more than mere window dressing or more than merely just a cool setting for the game, those are typically games that that take the history seriously and are worth recommending. You know, I think the Assassin's Creed series falls into that category. Mm -hmm. Uh, The latest game, Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which is uh, set in uh, the Peloponnesian War uh, in ancient Greece, that's a game that has quite a bit of, you know, factual uh, history behind it. Yeah. Uh, there is going to be a discovery tour mode for that game that's going to be released in the spring. So again, this version of the game that is just all uh, research-based, history-based, and uses the work of actual uh, Greek historians uh, and classicists in order to make the arguments within the game. Uh, so that's easy to recommend. Another series, obviously, is uh, Sid Meier's Civilization series, the kind of uh, uh, strategy series that can take just a, a few hours to understand, but, you know, kind of years and years to master. Um, that game has come out with uh, new updates, uh, downloadable content uh, in the past year for Civilization VI. And what's interesting about that series is it kind of goes along these lines of attempting to uh, change the way history is typically portrayed mm in video games. So, uh, for instance, uh, a recent update for the civilization, uh, game civilization six, uh, involved having, uh, kind of environmental disasters playing a larger role in your progress, yeah. uh, throughout history, uh, which is kind of an interesting addition. Um, there's also an educational version of civilization called civilization edu 
that's available that high school teachers or college professors uh, can actually contact a developer for access uh, mm. to get copies, cheap copies uh, for. And most of these developers, uh, Ubisoft or Assassin's Creed, for access with right. uh, Civilization, they will provide you with uh, educational copies. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the thing is, is that uh, if you're talking about historical games you, you and you want to recommend it to somebody, you often don't want it to be edutainment games, right? You don't want it to yeah. be so educational that uh, it becomes a little bit like homework. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's a, that's a difficult balance to, to reach. Um, but, you know, I think some games are often labeled as edutainment when really they're much more entertaining. Mm-hmm. Uh, one example I can think of is last year. A uh, game published by uh, USC's Game Lab uh, and their developer uh, Tracy Fullerton, uh, and it's uh, Walden a game. So it is huh? uh, a game version of uh, Walden and uh, Thoreau, and uh, it's a game that's a bit like a, a mixture of a RPG and yeah. a, a survival sim. Okay. And so you are you are following Thoreau as he's uh, uh, writing in his journal. Uh, and he's also uh, farming beans. Yeah. And it's really it's a fascinating game. And it's one that I think is labeled as edutainment. But it's one that I think a lot of players would find interesting or exciting, uh, even though it is kind of focused on uh, Thoreau yeah. uh, living out in his cabin on Walden Pond. I would never have imagined such a game, you know, just kind of, <laughs> you know, there's a lot long periods of contemplation in the game. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Um, so, you know, we've been talking to you a lot here about your, uh, you know, as, a, as someone who knows a lot about video games, right? Let me, let me pick your brain here quickly as a historian, you know, as a trained historian, when you are exposed or start to play a video game, is there anything that frustrates you or, you know, there's the old, like, well, that's not historically accurate or the, the buttons on the jacket are wrong or whatever, um, I'm assuming you've kind of moved beyond that kind of critique, but is there anything that kind of frustrates you about history video games as a professional historian who plays them? You know, I think that what frustrates me is so often with these games, there's very little contact or go between uh, between developers and historians. Mm. And I think that there's really no reason for that. I mean, you know, I had mentioned Maxine Durand yeah. and the Assassin's Creed series. That's kind of the one instance I can think of when which, you know, a major developer has relied on a historian uh, yeah. to create the game narrative, to create game mechanics. And I think that's frustrating because so many of these game narratives, even though they use history, even though they're sometimes related to uh, actual historical research, the narratives within those games, I think, are a bit bland and boring. Yeah. And sometimes they option off, um, you know, kind of the ways in which history has been portrayed in films, for instance. Um good example of this is uh, Red Dead Redemption 2, which has just come out. Biggest video game release this year, developed by Rockstar Games, also responsible for Grand Theft Auto series. Mm -hmm. And in this series, they have relied on their own in-house research team to create a version of 1899 America, you know, kind of the closing down of the Old West following this, uh, this gang. And I was incredibly frustrated playing this game because I was sitting there playing that somebody is familiar with that history, also familiar with kind of the general history of criminality uh, for my own research, uh, dissertation and book research. And I was just sitting there thinking, gosh, I know so many 
better stories, yeah. you know, kind of better characters that you could have used as a basis for this game's narratives, for this game's uh, characterization of this era uh, than what you've got in here. Uh, and so when I look at historical games, I, like you've said, I kind of gotten over the pedantic issues right. of uh, there should be this many buttons on this jacket. And instead, I think about what are the great stories that scholars have got that they could help these game developers, you know, portray right. in these games. Um, and I think, you know, part of my work with History Respawn has been attempting to build that bridge between developers and scholars. Yeah. And I'd say I, I've been somewhat successful in gaining developer interest, yeah. but there's yeah. still so much work that could be done. It, so, so in this example that you gave, your scholarship is actually making the entertainment value of the game stronger, right? Cause you know, these better stories and so forth. Yeah. That's, that's really I would, interesting. I would say so. I yeah, mean, that's really you know, interesting. I would, I would hope so. Yeah, um, yeah. but you know, it just, it's up to developers to, to kind of look for scholars. And I think right now they often think, well, of course, scholars aren't going to be interested in this, yeah. right? No, no scholars really taking these games uh, seriously, but you know, I think it's part of my work is to kind of say, Hey, you know, we're out here, you know, pick up the phone, send us an email, do anything. And we'll, yeah. we'll show and it's, up. We'll and it's, it's for the benefit. It's for their benefit. Yes. Yeah. That's yes. the, that's the point. I'm just curious where are we at with that? I, it sounds like we have a lot more work to do before scholars kind of enter into this world. That's the question I'm really interested in. You know, I train yeah. history students for a living yeah. and I try to give them a vision of kind of what they can do with their major beyond just teaching right? Yeah. Um, or working in a museum. Do you see the future kind of, you know, are you optimistic about sort of historians kind of adding their expertise to this world? I am. And the reasons I am involve the work that I've done with History Respond, um, yeah. you know, with that series, I've made a concerted effort to promote the series amongst game developers yeah. in particular. Since its beginning, I've been publishing the series uh, on Gama Sutra, which uh, it mm -hmm. sounds something sexual, but it's actually <laughs> a it's actually a business website. Uh, it's kind of like the Financial Times for yeah. the video game world. And it's a place where game developers go and they read up on the industry where they uh, search for jobs. It's kind of a main hub. Right. And uh, Gama Sutra has been publishing uh, the videos, history, respawn videos and podcasts. And uh, in 2016, uh, History Respawn was actually named uh, one of the YouTube channels that encouraged uh, video game developers to create better games. Good. So there's been some you know, recognition yeah. there. Yeah. I've also uh, been an attendee to the uh, Game Developers Conference, GDC, a couple years ago where I met with a lot of developers, kind of talked a little bit about this issue. Um, and so I think there's an awareness, a growing awareness among developers about scholarships and scholars and their willingness to participate. But I think scholars could do quite a bit more. You know, yeah, it's yeah. very often the case when I'm interviewing somebody for History Respawn, a historian uh, or another uh, social scientist where they never interacted with games or even thought yeah. about games yeah. as a serious medium. Um, and, you know, I think that's that goes a lot to point about games and violence, right? This is right, kind of right. still seen as a medium that is not serious. Yeah. Uh, in a lot of ways, I see video games uh, in a very similar situation to other mediums. You know, you think back to the way novels were considered in the early 18th century right. or the way motion pictures were seen in the early 20th century. 
And yet now we see those as established mediums that are worthy of critique and worthy of scholarly participation. And I think we're getting to that point with games. And I think in order to kind of push things forward, you know, it helps to have public history projects dedicated to this, but it also might help to have scholars in their own right getting involved with game development. Um, You know, there are tools out there that are available, uh, game making software in which scholars could present their own historical narratives, perhaps present historical research, not in a journal article, not in a blog post, not in a podcast, but instead through an interactive product. Uh, And that's really where I'd like to see things going forward. And maybe that'll happen, but I'm going to try to do as much as I can to make sure that happens. (laughs) Right. As we're talking here, I'm, I'm struck by the degree to which pop culture broadly, whether it be film, comic books or, or, or video games is wrestling with how much of the narratives that come out of these these industries, they're white male fantasies, right? And, yes. And, and historians would be such great resources because we have, especially in the last 20 or 30 years, have spent so much energy exploring the margins of the historical record and finding the stories of, you know, the the woman who joins secretly as a man and into the army or during the revolutionary war or, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think about Assassin's Creed and how much emphasis they put on, especially Assassin's Creed three, which we've been talking about, how much emphasis they put on how much Mohawk language is actually in that game, which I think is a pretty remarkable thing because it's in many ways is illegible to most players. You know, not many people Mm -hmm. are going to be able to pronounce any of the Mohawk words that are in that game yet. There are still a lot of them. You know, and so I, I feel like that is, as I think we're all in agreement here, I think that's a, a real missed opportunity because just like you said about Red Dead Redemption, you know, we, we know these stories that, we, that they're trying yeah. to put in anyways. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, is uh, like John was mentioning, this would be such a benefit, I think, not just for scholars to get their research, to get those ideas out in public circulation, but also for developers. I mean, you yeah. know, when you talk to developers, their biggest obstacle involves creating these worlds, right? Creating the basis for these worlds, creating the stories that, you know, uh, go into these worlds that they're uh, developing. And, you know, what if you could offer them pre-made worlds? What if you could offer them pre-made stories that are already ready to go, right? Um, I think that's why there's been this strong relationship between history and games is the fact that when you're creating a historical video game as a developer, you don't have to come up with an original idea, right? You can take what's already there and develop something out of it. And so what I'm saying is do that, but use better stories, use better research, use scholarly knowledge. Yeah, this, this, this conversation has been great. It's really opened my eyes to some things. So I, I really appreciate it, Bob. Bob, we've been talking with Bob Whitaker. He is the creator and host of History Respawn, which is a YouTube and podcast series that considers historical content in video games. He also teaches history uh, at Louisiana Tech University and is a research fellow in the Wagner Center there at the university. Bob, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Great. Have a great day. I tell you, Drew, I wasn't sure what to expect from this episode, but um, listening to Bob talk about the possibilities that historians might play in helping the video game industry was just fascinating to me. I have actually used at least one video game in, in my teaching. You know, as many of the listeners know, I teach Native American cultures here at Messiah College. And although it was not a requirement, 
I assign as a project for all of my students, they, they need to at least engage with some sort of piece of contemporary indigenous culture. So that could be a, a movie made by an indigenous filmmaker or, or an album made by an indigenous musician. But uh, one of the options that they can take is uh, a game made by Inuit developers named Never Alone, which is a game based on, on Inuit mythology. And so uh, I did have a group last semester do a kind of, um, they did a, a video game conference review of this, what is now actually a very famous video game because of its development and the story behind its development. So it's something I've engaged with, but Bob here, he's, he's really taking it to the next level. He's, he's teaching whole courses based around uh, history and video games. You know, I can't honestly say I would ever play a video game in one of my classes. I am, though, really interested in this technology of um, reconstructing these cities, like we talked a little bit about in the interview. I mean, that to me is just fascinating. You know, I was talking in the interview about these tours I give of colonial Philadelphia and to be able to reconstruct Quaker Meeting House and the marketplace and so forth would just be just phenomenal. So, so I'm, I'm really open to this kind of technology. And, and again, as I said in the interview, as a teacher of undergraduate history majors, I hope undergraduates will listen to this uh, podcast because this seems to be a very, very ripe field for historians to use their historical thinking and skills and content knowledge. Well, I can only imagine some of this world construction that is so immersive, especially with the Assassin's Creed series. I can only imagine that that technology could become even more immersive with the, the increasing availability of virtual reality, yeah. and augmented reality technology, right? And so not only does a student have a chance to use a controller to move through a historical place, but they could actually put on a VR headset and walk through this yeah. place. And exactly like you're saying, and now you're not just imagining right. the historical place that's now a Sunoco, right, but right. instead you're, you're, you're actually there and you could walk through it. You know, we haven't gotten to the place where we could smell the smells and considering colonial America, I don't know if we'd want to, but there's a lot of garbage on the streets <laughs> yeah. in those colonial cities. <laughs> those we don't normally think about those pre indoor plumbing days, but they're all sanitized today. I love these episodes, Drew, where, you know, it's it's always great when we talk to like a nationally known author or Pulitzer Prize winner or author of a book. But, you know, when we first envisioned this podcast, I think we always had these kinds of episodes in mind where we talked about uh, we talked to people who are doing history in creative and innovative ways. And, you know, this is this is definitely one of those kinds of episodes. Uh, I can't help but think of Bob discussing the ways in which he found a passion and found a way to make his passion his job, which makes us think of our other our other Bob, who we always feature here in the show, Bob Beatty, and, and the ways in which he might be able to help. If you've got this passion project, you think really has a chance to to make an impact in a community. You know, that's what he's here for is, is to help with the logistics. And that's what the Lindhurst Group is here for. So, you know, make sure to reach out. You never know how that connection might yeah might come to fruition until you reach out. So make sure to do that. Yeah. And one thing about Bob is he'll he'll... You know, think big, and Bob will help you think exactly. big on those kinds of things. So anyway, I think that's a wrap, Drew. It's a wrap. I got, you know, I'm excited. I want to go home and play some video games. Maybe I should go home and do some Christmas shopping now that I have this whole other category of possible gift ideas uh, in my head. Well, so, uh, I, I do have to put you on the spot. You were talking to your daughter up at Calvin, and you mentioned that you're going to be playing some video games, and they, they were a little bit shocked at, at imagining what you were going to be like there behind the controller pad. Yeah, they were kind of mocking me. <laughs> um, you know, you're going to play video games, and people are going to watch you play <laughs> video games. Right? Well, you were very brave, I must my say. My daughter and her brave. roommates had a big, big kick out of that. But anyway... 
Again, we're recording this in December, um, so we're in the middle of holiday season right now. I hope you're enjoying your your Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays to everyone. And may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. The Wave Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H Podcast. The podcast was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Margaret Graves, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future, as well as the Lindhurst Group. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Bob Whitaker. Our studio producer is Abby LaBianca. And I've been your producer, Drew Durley Hermeling. And your host is John Fia. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.